0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to talk this morning about abiding in Christ. Now, we've been working our way through... First John, and you probably noticed this is the Gospel of John, but uh, last week we looked at verses 20 through 25 of chapter 2. Now notice again what he said in verse 24. He said, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abide in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Anything in that verse stand out to you? Do what? John, where do you get this stuff from? There's three abides there, okay? John is paying attention, alright? Yeah, over and over he's saying this, alright? He used that three times in this one verse here. And in chapter 2, John uses abide or abides ten times. This is a major theme for John. First, John, as we've said over and over, is about fellowship, which is equivalent to abiding. So what I want to do in our study this morning is to go back to the Gospel of John and look again at what Yeshua taught His disciples about the importance of abiding. Chapters 13-17 through 17 of the Gospel of John form a division which is called the Upper Room Discourse. All right? This is a time when the Lord is with His disciples and them alone, teaching them. The upper room discourse is something you're not going to find in the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have that. This is our Lord in His final hours of His earthly life, and He climaxes this section with His high priestly prayer in John 17, where He's just praying to the Father. This section is about the subject of love. The love of Yeshua for His own. Now, the first 17 verses of chapter 15 can be divided up this way. The first six verses present a metaphor about a vine and branches. And then verses 7-17 through make the application. Now, the theme of this section is clearly fruit-bearing. Okay? I mean, if you read it over, you're going to pick that up. The word fruit occurs eight times in these 17 verses and only occurs two times other fruit. In this gospel. So this is about fruit bearing. Keep that in mind. Now, some think that the teaching of the vine and the branches is a parable. I don't think so. And I think if you see it as a parable, it could hurt your interpretation. I see it as a metaphor. And the difference is a parable uses a story to convey a deeper message, whereas metaphors refer to one subject while the actual subject is something else entirely. Okay, talking about vine, talking about branches, but what's he really talking about? He's talking about his disciples and them bearing fruit, okay? And I think that distinction is important because a par- in a parable, details don't matter. You're looking for one central truth that the parable teaches. All right, J.C. Ryle states this, The general lesson of each parable is the main thing to be noticed. The minor details must not be tortured and pressed to an excess in order to extract a meaning from them so what we have here in our text is didactic teaching using a metaphor where I think the details of this are important because it's didactic now to some degree this vine and branches metaphor is similar to the head body metaphor that we pick up in Paul where Christ is the head believers as members of the body both metaphors bring out the vital and necessary connection which exists between Christ and believers, all right? It is my understanding that this passage on fruit-bearing deals with the subject of discipleship, all right? The fruit-bearing is not really, you know, fruit or grapes, or it's not. he's not emphasizing that, he's using a metaphor to teach us about discipleship. And what he's telling us is that fruit-bearing is a mark of discipleship. Again, I think something very important for us to understand. He says in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. So you bear fruit, and by the fruit proves to be disciple. Now he doesn't say here, if you bear a lot of fruit, everyone will really know you're a Christian. It's not the subject here. He's talking about discipleship. But the problem is, most Christians, most people, don't see a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. They just say they're the same thing. They incorrectly think believer and disciple are synonymous. These are different terms describing different groups in relation to Yeshua. And a person can be a Christian and not be a disciple. A person can be a disciple and not really even be a Christian. All right, so they're not a very good disciple if not a Christian, but they can say they're following Christ. All right. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the gospel of Yeshua, who is the Christ. At that moment, they're placed in the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're as sure as heaven as they're already there because they are in Christ. And the Scriptures make it quite clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth into the Christian life, and discipleship is our education, our maturity in the Christian life. So For example, compare two texts. John 3.16, we're all familiar with it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So the issue there is believing, faith. Eternal life is a gift of grace to all who believe. You see any cost involved in that verse? No, and as you go through this whole gospel, you're not going to see any cost involved. No labor, no agony. But notice what Luke says. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that sound a little different than 3.16? See, discipleship is a call to forsake all and follow Christ. So, you know, can this be talking about the same thing as John 3.16? And I've seen people who catch this. Through their reading of the word, and they struggle over because they don't understand the difference. Is it a free gift of grace, or do we have? Well, you're talking about two different concepts here. One Christian, and one disciple. Disciple is from the Greek word mathetes, which literally means a learner or a follower. Does that describe all Christians? No, it doesn't. All right. In the Hebrew culture of the day, a disciple was someone who, more than anything else in the world, wanted to be like their teacher. A disciple wanted to be like their rabbi. That's why they would follow the rabbi. They would be with the rabbi 24-7. They wanted to be like them. And a disciple remains a disciple as long as he or she continues to follow the instruction of his or her teacher. When a person stops following faithfully, he or she ceases to be a disciple. Mathetes is the most common designation in the Gospels for the followers of Yeshua. Outside the Gospels, it's only found in the book of Acts. Now, I see discipleship, being a follower or learner of Christ, as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. All Christians are called to be disciples. They're called to be learners. They're called to be followers. But many are just not willing to pay the price. Because discipleship is costly. Alright, now here's, let me boil down discipleship very clearly and simply for you. A follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, will be living like Christ lived. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, the abiding, being his disciples, abiding in Christ, watch, ought to walk in the same way which he walked. There you go, isn't that simple? You want to be a disciple? Just live like Christ. Simple, right? Simple to define, maybe not so simple to do, but that's our goal, people. In John 15, Yeshua is addressing His followers, His disciples. He's not talking to unsaved. He's not talking to a mixed audience. He's talking to believers and believers alone. And this is what He says. The central theme of chapter 15 is not salvation. It's it's how how it's obtained, the danger of losing it. It's none of that. The theme is fruit bearing. The theme is discipleship and the conditions of fertility. He says in verse 1, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Now, what do those words initially say to you? If Yeshua says He's the true vine, what's that tell us? Thank you, John. There's a false vine. There's false vines, right? He's a true one. Well, it must be in, he's comparing it to something, right? He is contrasting himself with a vine that wasn't true. The word true here is from the Greek Alathanos, and it means opposite to what is to what is imperfect, defective, fail, frail, uncertain. The word for alathanos, as used in John, means real or genuine. I'm the genuine, I'm the real vine. So who or what is the vine that was not true? Okay? In in the Old Covenant, the vine was a symbol of Israel as Yahweh's covenant people. Uh, Look at Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Okay, this is Israel, God taking them out of the slavery in Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. He's talking about Israel. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, it's all about God's vineyard. Israel. He took and planted a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. The vine, when we're dealing with the vine, we're dealing with language and imagery that had special significance for the Jew. For the Israelites. They were God's vine. They knew that. So what would the disciples have thought when they heard Yeshua make this claim? See, a vine is so much more than just a common sight for the Jews. It was that. But it had been used as a word picture of God's people throughout the Tanakh. So they knew that Israel was the vine. So Yeshua here identifies Himself, not Judah, not Israel, as the genuine or true vine. Christ is now the vine. And those of old covenant Israel who believe in Him are now part of the true vine. They're members of the new Israel, of the new covenant church. It is the faithful remnant of old Israel that are now the new Israel of God, part of the everlasting covenant. And listen, those Jews, those Israelites who did not trust Christ are no longer the part of the true vine since Christ came. So the significance of the claim to be the true vine is that Yeshua viewed Himself as the fulfillment of Israel. God called Israel to be His people, to live out His laws and obey Him and be a light to the nations. They failed miserably. So Christ comes along. He is the new Israel. He was the true Israel. And Yeshua's followers were the true Israelites. Now this claim is an exclusive claim. It prohibits and denies the existence of any valid and viable alternative. He's the vine. That's it, the only vine. So Yeshua comes along and says, in effect, that a person is no longer part of God's people simply by being joined to the nation Israel. See, things changed. Once Christ showed up, things changed. You either trusted him or you were no longer part of the covenant people any longer. A person needs to be joined to Him. He is the true vine. He is the true Israel. So Yeshua uses the vine metaphorically of Himself. We can't escape the inference that Yeshua viewed Himself as the fulfillment of Israel. He is the true Israel. He supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. He's the true vine. The full and final revelation of all the dead vine anticipated and foreshadowed throughout the old covenant he is it now the imagery of the vine underscores the importance of fruitfulness in the christian life and the truth that this results not from human achievement but from one's relationship with christ the vine is the source of everything for the branch you understand that right fruit doesn't come unless it's connected right and in order for that branch to produce fruit all it has to do is be attached to the vine If you break it off, it's not producing anything, all right? Nothing at all. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. The word vine dresser here is from the Greek word georgos, which means earth worker, one who is a farmer, who tills the soil. In this context, it refers to one who is a vine dresser or who is an expert in caring for vines. As the owner, he expects fruit from his vineyard. And he does what is necessary for it to bear fruit. So he says in verse 2 Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, most of the disciples would have understood the basics of viticulture, all right, that Yeshua is describing here. Every year, the vine branches would be pruned back to allow more growth. Suckers and entangling weeds would be removed, and the farmer would cut out of the vine branches that had died or were not producing fruit anymore. So Lazarus is using a play on two similar-sounding Greek verbs, which we translate as takes away here, which is from the Greek word "airo," and prunes, which is from the Greek kathero. Now in the next verse, he's going to use the adjective clean, Which comes from katharos, which corresponds to the second verb and unites the idea of cutting with clean cleansing and pruning. So, if God the Son is the true vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser who prunes and maintains the branches, what do the branches represent? Christians, right? Believers, all right. The branches are believers, those who have trusted Christ, and I'll prove that to you in a minute. All right, so just hang on. What is the fruit that the branches bear? Well, in this metaphor, it's a life of obedience to the teaching of Christ. It's Christ-likeness. We just saw that. The one who abides ought to walk as he walked. And I think especially here, he's talking about the commandment to love one another as Christ loved them. All right? That's the fruit. It's loving others. It's being like Christ. Now he says, every branch in me. Yeshua is the vine, the disciples are the branches, the branches derive their life from the vine, the vine produces its fruit through the branches. Now the phrase in me here is used 16 times in this gospel, and in each case it refers to union with Christ. So far as I know, that expression is never used of a non-Christian. A person in me is always a Christian. And As I said earlier, this is not a parable, so details matter. So that's why I said we have to understand this as a metaphor, not a parable, because these details matter, because this branch is in him. Now notice what happens to the branch that doesn't bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now the Greek word translated here is takes away. iro. it can mean take away, or it can mean lift up. In Johannine usage, the word occurs in the sense of lift up in chapter 8, verse 59, and chapter 5, verse 8 through 12. But in the sense of remove, it's found in chapter 11, 39, 11, 48, 16, 22, and 17, 15. So he uses it both ways. Now those who interpret it here as meaning to take away in the idea of take away to judgment believe that either the believer loses their salvation Or the believer loses his reward and possibly even his life. I don't think either one of those are on track here. Those who interpret Iroh to mean lift up, believe that these branches get special attention from the vine dresser so they'll bear more fruit in the future. In other words, you got a young person and the fruit's not coming out, a young Christian, and the Lord takes care to help that person produce fruit. In viticulture, this involves lifting up the branch off the ground. So it will not, because if the branch is on the ground, it's going to try to send roots down, secondary roots. That's not good. It also, lifting it up, will keep it dry. They put it on a trellis, put it on a pole. It dries out the branch, prevents it from getting moldy, prevents disease from coming in. So I see Iro as used here of lifting up. Since in the spring, vine dressers, Both lifted up unfruitful branches and pruned fruitful branches of grapevines. All right, that was the thing that happened. Now he says, every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes, that it may bring, that it may bear more fruit. Now the Greek use for prunes here, katharo, it means cleanses. The word katharo is used both in agriculture for pruning and in religious contexts for purification and cleansing. The word was used by Philo for pruning grapevines. It is found only here in the New Testament. It's another word chosen by Lazarus for its dual connotations. And I think he means both of them here. It's a cleansing. It's a pruning. Now the farmer would prune away fruitless branches so that the vine's strength would go to fruitful branches. If any of you have done any gardening and stuff, you understand how this works. You want to get rid of the sucker shoots. You want to, you know, the branches that are producing fruit, you want to, you know, help them to get all the nourishment they can so they'll keep doing it. So they prune the weakest vines most thoroughly for the sake of bearing greater fruit in the long run. And most of the pruning during this year trim fruitful branches to strengthen them. Trim, get, Like I said, get off the sucker shoots, trim them back so they'll produce more fruit. But the severest annual pruning cut off completely fruitless branches. Once a year, they just go through the branches and bear fruit, they just get rid of it. Grapevines are much more plentiful, produce much more plentiful if they're pruned. So the father prunes or cuts back the branches that bear fruit, so they'll produce even more fruit. And this pruning may refer to hardship, difficulties, trials, which produces faithfulness and closer relationship with God, such as the disciples are about to experience, all right, after the Lord's crucifixion. Note, no fruit-bearing branch is exempt, but the Father's purpose is loving. It's so that each branch will bring forth more fruit. But this procedure is painful, but this is how we grow. This is how we learn. This is, I think, similar in thought to Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 there alright he says in verse 3 already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you who is the you here the disciples in the upper room that he's talking to you you are not you okay this is basic I know we have to go over this because too often you know people just read the text you oh who's he talking to that's the most important thing you can figure out he's talking to the disciples who are in the upper he's not talking to unbelievers He's not talking to a mixed crowd. He's got his disciples around him. Now what does it mean when he says, you're clean? These guys just all came from the shower and so they're all feeling pretty good and fresh and clean. What's he mean? You're clean. You're clean, he's saying. This is really important to understand before we jump into verse 4. You've got to get this. So in order to understand this, let's go back to chapter 13. Peter said to him, you know, the Lord puts a towel around his waist, you know, takes his base, he's going to wash their feet. You know, Peter, he says to him, you'll never wash my feet. So Yeshua answered, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, no fellowship, no partnership with me if I don't wash you. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Give me a whole bath and if that's going to help out. And Yeshua said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now watch, and he says to them, you are clean. But then he goes on to say, but not every one of you. So clean here refers to salvation. Why does he say not all of them are clean? Because Judas is still in the upper room with them. He hasn't left yet. By chapter 15, Judas is gone, all right? So he says, you're clean, but not all of you. One writer says here that Judas was the unfruitful branch that was taken away and whose final end was to be cast into the fires of hell. No, Judas wasn't taken away because he was unfruitful. He was taken away because he was an unbeliever. He wasn't part of it. Alright? That's why he's taken away. In chapter 15, he simply says, Already are you clean? So he is talking to his children. They were believers. And he says, You're clean. But not every one of you in 13. Now, the term prunes here, katharo, in 15.2, is the same Greek root as clean, katharos. This entire context contains the evidence of true discipleship. You say, you're clean. So clean and prunes there, they're they're connected. All right? Their roots are connected. (laughs) That's a little pun there. Their roots. (laughs) Talking about vines and branches. All right. So he says here, already, and the term already is emphasized in the Greek text, which gives the remaining disciples confidence of their secure position in Christ. Already, you're clean. All right? You disciples, you're ones that are here, you're clean. Because of the word that I've spoken to you, Now, the word here is Logos. The word of the living word has purified them. Logos here means the entire sum of Yeshua's teaching. Spurgeon explained it like this. He says, it is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses the Christian. Amen. It's the word of God. He goes on to say this, Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife. But the knife is the Word. So, stressing there the importance of the Word of God. So Yeshua tells them that that they're clean through the Word that He's spoken to them. They have believed in Him. His children, He says, are to now abide in Him. Now, we've got to get this here. Verse 3, you're clean. You're saved. You're a Christian. The verb verb abide here in verse 4 is the Greek word mano. It's used 11 times in John 15, 40 times in John's gospel, 27 times in John's epistle. Mano is a major theme, theological theme for Lazarus. All right? This is really important. Abide is mano. Remain. Continue. Abide in me. That's strong in the original text. It's in a tense that expresses a decisive command. So he is commanding his children, believers, to do this, abide in me. It's in the active voice. That is something we are expected to do. We are expected to initiate that. Believers, we're commanded to abide in Christ. That's clear enough. But what exactly does it mean to abide Well, the word abide is used of dwelling in other parts of the Gospel. So Yeshua could be saying, keep close to Me. In other places, the word, it's used, follow Me. Do what I say. Obey My commands. So Christians are exhorted to abide in Christ because the privilege and duty may be neglected and very often is. But I want you to see there's a a distinction here. He's talking to those who believe. You're clean. You're clean do this, abide in me. This is separate. This is something additional. So abide to it is to dwell in Christ. And we do this by spending time in His Word, by spending time in prayer, by walking in obedience to what He has taught us. He says, abide in me. And then in verse 10 He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So to be in Him, Every branch in me, he says, comes when we believe in the Lord Yeshua. Being in Christ is union. That's unchangeable. That's something God does. He joins us with Christ. We're in union with Him. That will never change. Never change. But to abide in Him is communion. This can change, all right? being is the source of life abiding is the source of fruit so we come to be in Christ through faith but through abiding in him through dwelling in him fruit is produced aw pink wrote <clears throat> now abiding always has reference to fellowship that's what john first the gospel i mean first john is all about fellowship and only those who have been born again are capable of having fellowship with the Father and His Son. You can't have fellowship if you're not even a Christian. You know, so many Christians believe they're saved by grace, and then they figure, now I'm on my own, i got to work to please the Lord and make Him happy and live the Christian life. <laughs> if you feel that way, you got to feel like a failure most of the time. Okay? You come into the Christian life by grace, you live the Christian life by grace. And you deny the principle of grace in any area and you're in trouble. You know, that's to deny the fact that we can do anything apart from Christ. So we're saved by grace, by sovereign grace. We're also sanctified by His grace. You may have heard it said, if you're striving, you're not abiding. Keswick's kind of brought that along. You know, it's their idea was let go and let God. You know, flop on God. Just, ah, just let Him, you know. I don't think that's necessarily true, okay? I think sometimes you have to strive in order to abide, all right? I think there are times when you know, you're dealing with your flesh, you're dealing with the constant pull of the world that tries to pull you out of fellowship, and you have to put some effort into abiding to make it happen. Paul told Timothy this. He says, I fought a good fight. Any of you have been in a passive fight? I mean, the word fight should bring into your mind effort. You know, it takes a lot of effort to win a fight. He says, I finished a race. Anybody ever been in a race? That's not too passive either. You've got to be involved. You've got to put all you can into it, especially if you want to win, okay? Abiding involves discipline and striving. But we do all this, listen, in dependence on Him. Now, when we think discipline, we think, oh, well, then I don't know. Discipline is connected with dependence. I'm depending on Christ, Lord. I need you. But you have to discipline your life. Without disciplining your life, you're just going to drift and not hit anything. All right? You've got to discipline your life to spend time in the Word of God. To do the things you know are right to do. The branches have to make a deliberate effort, indicating by the imperative verb abide, to maintain a close personal relationship with the vine. If we think of abiding in terms of a marriage, I think it might help us understand that. Marriage is to be a lifelong relationship in which the husband and wife grow over the years, to love each other more, to understand each other more. But it doesn't often work that way. Those who have been married for a while know that it takes work to have a good marriage. It's not like... I had a guy actually once tell me, if it's this much work, why do you got to do it? Like, you know, what's the point? And I'm like, anything worth having is worth effort. And worth. You know, if you're not working, that's why your marriage is as bad as it is. Because he had a terrible marriage, but he just thought if you love each other, everything would just turn out roses. You know, I'm like, you're dumb. It's not, that's just not how it works. You have to work at it. If you don't constantly work at your marriage, you and your spouse are going to drift apart, and eventually there won't be a relationship. I believe the same is true of abiding in Christ. There'll be times when you feel really close to the Lord. And other times when you feel very distant. The key is to make our home in Christ. To continually spend time with Him. We have to always be working on our relationship with the Lord. You can't put it on autopilot. I think the second law of thermodynamics works in a Christian life. Entropy works just as it does in the world. Anything left to itself. Just leave your yard alone and see how it does. Just leave your garden. Just plant it and let it go and see how well it turns out. Just don't work on your house and it just will get better and better every year, right? No, nothing works that way. Okay? And your Christian life doesn't work that way. You put effort in, you work at it. In verse 4 he said, abide in me and I in you. And then in verse 7 he says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you so in verse 7 the phrase my words abide in you is substituted for the phrase in verse 4 I in you so we could say that for Christ to abide in us is for his word to abide in us and that's why it's so important for us to spend time in the Word of God you can abide in Christ if his word doesn't abide in you and you might be thinking well I've read it once I know it (laughs) really that is a really foolish thought because I'll tell you what, you know, and see, we tend to forget. And so if you're not reminded by constantly going through the word, then I mean, I come across verses and I'm like, oh man, that's a thought I haven't thought of lately and it needs to be thought about, you know, we grow, we learn as we spend time in the book, but that's what he gave it to us for. It reveals his mind to us. He says, unless it abides, and then he says, unless you abide. Now these are both third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you won't, maybe you will. Our spiritual effectiveness is linked to our continuing relationship with Yeshua. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Yeshua tells these believers to abide in Him. And if they do, they'll bear fruit. Yeshua had spoken of no fruit in verse 2, some fruit in verse 2, more fruit in verse 2. Now He speaks of much fruit. They're going to bear much fruit. Listen, the more you abide, the more you walk like Christ, the more fruit you produce. Christ-likeness. And... People, we can't get this idea of what Christ is like from the church. We've got to get it from the Word, okay? Because too often the church is way far away from the Word and what it means to be Christ-likeness, all right? The branches will produce nothing unless they remain connected to the vine from which their life and sustenance flows. And as far as the disciples are concerned, they will produce no fruit from themselves if they don't remain in a dependent relationship with Yeshua. He's the source of all life and productivity. For the disciple now I love what he says here apart from me you can do nothing Is that an all-inclusive statement there or maybe should we should take it in context where it connects with fruit bearing okay because you know you can I just can't do can't paint the house honey apart from Christ I just can't do it I'm not too spiritual today so no I can't do it no you can do a lot of things without a dependence in Christ you can raise a family without them people do it all the time right You can run a business without Him. You can be very active, even as a Christian. You can fill your days with tremendous activity and busyness without a dependence on Him, but you're not going to be Christ-like in doing it. You'll have achieved nothing, He said, in God's sight. And that's the thing here. Apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual benefit unless you're connected to me. This is the balance of the Christian life. Without dependence, discipline is barren. You can be the most disciplined person in the world. If you're doing it without dependence on Christ, it's it's empty. Discipline is necessary, but so is dependence. They've got to go hand in hand. You need to expect God to work. You need to trust Him to work. There must be a sense of His presence with you, a consciousness that He's willing to work through you, and the patience to let Him work in His own way. You know, and this this happens as you grow. You know, the Scriptures say those who know your name will put their trust in you. So if you have trouble trusting Him, it's because you don't know Him. And knowing His name means His character. You understand His character. You know who He is. The more you know Him, the more you can trust Him. That's true of anybody, isn't it? I've heard someone say, "Would well, you trust so-and-so? I don't even know them. I'd be foolish to trust them. You know, that's just dumb if you trust people you don't even know. But once you know somebody, then you could say, Hey, I know them. I trust that person. It's not a question of your sufficiency, but admitting your insufficiency. See, no figure could more forcibly express the complete dependence of the believer on Christ for all fruit-bearing than this. You've got to be connected to the vine. Those who are saved are called to abide. So what happens when we don't? I mean, a lot of Christians, they just don't. So what happens when we don't? Well, that's verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. This is the third class conditional sentence. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. In other words, maybe you will, maybe you won't. The Anyone in the context is who? Believers, that's who he's talking to. This is happening, whatever is happening here, we have to understand it's happening to a believer. doesn't apply to unbelievers. Now some, in order to escape the severity of what is said here, say this is referring to unbelievers. Well, he's not talking to unbelievers. That's not in the context that doesn't fit at all. They would say that these fruitless branches represent those who profess to believe in Christ, but their life gives no evidence of saving faith. They don't bear fruit. They would say that Yeshua in this context is referring to Judas Iscariot who professed to believe, followed Yeshua for three years, went out preaching His name, but who was never saved. That's a a typical thought along the line of this verse here. The Faith Life Study Bible says this, Jesus is referring to those who chose not to accept Him as Savior. The dead branches are people who are useless to God's work. People like Judas who chose to reject Jesus when faced with the truth. Well, again, that's not the context. He's talking to his children. Hall Harris writes this, We conclude, therefore, that the branches who do not bear fruit, taken away, and burned are not genuine believers. Well, hey, we can't have burning and believers go together, so they can't be believers. They are those, they are those who profess some sort of allegiance to Jesus but who in reality don't belong to Him. In the Gospel of John, the primary example of this category is Judas. Well, here's the problem that I have with this. Yeshua said, you are clean. They're, They're believers. That's who He's talking to. Judas is gone. He's talking to His people. That's so important. So those explanations don't make any sense. First of all, to abide is to bear fruit. Judas could not bear fruit, neither can any unbeliever. You can't be Christ-like if you don't even know Him, All right, Yeshua is not telling unbelievers to abide in Him. They can't do that. It is believers, you're clean, who are told to abide. So this can't be talking about unbelievers. No unbelievers are there with Yeshua. No one is hearing this except His children. Well, then you have those who understand this to teach that believers may lose their salvation. Well, yeah, they're believers. That's who he's talking to. But he's warning them you could lose your salvation. Let me say this. I try to say it not in a rude or insulting way, but as bluntly as I can. If you think you can lose your salvation, you don't understand biblical salvation. Bottom line, you just don't understand what it's all about. If you think you can lose it. Look at what Yeshua has already taught in this gospel. 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. The word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine, sovereign election. The concept of the elect being a love gift from the Father is taught throughout the Scripture. See, that's what people don't get. All that the Father gives will come. Now, in this text, if you go back up in the text, you'll see that coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous here. So he's saying, all the Father gives me. In other words, the Father has a love gift that He is giving to the Son for dying. Some people have the idea, well, Christ died, but it's all up to you from there on. Well, in that scenario, Christ could have died for nothing. Nobody maybe ever believed on Him, so He just died uselessly and for nothing. No, He died for a specific purpose to bring people, His people to redemption, and the Father gave Him a love gift, the elect, for His suffering. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So whoever believes in him, coming to him synonymous, will never cast out. This is speaking of eternal security. That is, salvation is secure. Just as I did nothing to earn my salvation, I can do nothing to lose my salvation. I'm glad of that. I'm eternally secure in his electing love. If any part of my eternal salvation depends on my power or my ability or my commitment or my righteousness, I'm damned. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would. Okay? And so would you. Alright? You know that the tulip is the flower for Calvinism. You know what the flower for Arminianism is? The daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me loves me not that's not how it works people you don't go back and forth he loves you if ever he loved you he loves you forever he loved you in eternity past he will always love you look at john 6:39 and 40 and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he's given me but raise it up at the last day for this is the will of my father this is god's will that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. There's the given me concept again. The ones He's given me. This is God's will that He doesn't lose anything. So Yeshua makes it clear that He'll not lose any that the Father has given Him, but He will give them eternal life. He will raise them up on the last day. If one individual that the Father gave to the Son failed to reach Heaven, it'd be a disgrace for the Son since it would indicate his inability or unwillingness to fulfill the father's will if you are a believer you're secure you can never lose your salvation people that's motivation to live holy i have security security brings peace doesn't it comfort john 10:28 i give them eternal life and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's clear, all right? We're secure. Other scriptures strongly affirm that God keeps all whom He saves unto eternal life. Romans 8 teaches us that salvation is an eternal matter in which nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 1 Peter 1 teaches us that we're kept by the power of God unto salvation. He brings us. He keeps us. John 15, 6. So, this is not talking about the loss of salvation. It can't be lost. So, what's he talking about? Well, I see this as talking to believers, because that's who he's talking to, about the discipline that they will incur if they don't abide in Christ. And here's a problem that I think many of us have. One of the single most serious problems failure in the interpretation of the New Testament is eviscerating the warning passages. You see a tough passage like this, and you say, can't be speaking to us. Let's make it unbelievers. Then, oh, we're good, right? And that's, you know, why would you rip the bowels out of something that God is trying to give us to teach us? Alright? If you interpret these warning passages applying only to believers... You miss the whole point of them. Their teaching has no value in your life. See, I see verse 6 as talking about believers who are not abiding in Christ and would therefore be taken away for disciplinary action by the Lord. He disciplines who He loves. Romans 12. I mean, Hebrews 12. In other words, if as believers we don't bear fruit, if our life is characterized by persistent rebellion against God, then discipline takes place in the family of God. God disciplines His children. Why? Because He loves us. He prunes these branches because He wants them to bring forth more fruit. (coughs) In the church of Corinth, they they weren't acting too much like Christians. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Talking to Christians. Judgment. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. People are dying in Corinth because of sin. Christians are dying. In other words, discipline can ultimately end in physical death. I think you just keep messing up. God's like, we're getting him out of there. He's a mess. He's not a good image bearer. We're going to stop this. Remember what our Lord said about the unforgiving brother in Matthew 18, 34? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You know, this whole context is about forgiveness because, listen, in the family of God, one thing you can count on, you're going to get hurt, right? Someone's going to hurt you. You're, if you're around people, you're going to get hurt, all right? And so he says one important thing about this is forgiveness. You need to forgive one another. And if you don't, God says, he's talking to a believer, if you don't forgive, guess what? I'll give you to the jailers. And that is a horrible, Translation, all right? It's horrible translation. The Greek here is basenistes, and it means torturers. Torturers. He was to pay what was due for his sin of unforgiveness. Until he forgave, he's going to be turned over to the torturers. This man was disciplined by the king in the in the parable here. In the same way, when we fail to forgive, we better expect torturous discipline. Now what does he mean by delivered him to the jailers? I think this is referring to it can be physical problems, it can be mental pain, it can be all kinds of things that God brings into your life as a disciplining child to get your attention. I shared with you before, with me, it was total paralysis. Okay, I came down with Guillain-Barre syndrome, I was paralyzed from the neck down, I was in ICU, and I said, Lord, okay, (laughs) <laughs> i'll do what you want me to do because there's no fighting god all right okay. he has a way to get your attention and you really can't afford to not be forgiving because of the high cost of unforgiveness these are physical consequences i think to non forgive unforgiving and other sins in your life if you're not bearing fruit god has a way to get you to bear the fruit i've heard so many people say that god knows which buttons to push yeah he's god He made the whole thing. That's why He knows what buttons to push. He knows how to get your attention. He knows how to do that. So is Yeshua saying that if His disciples don't abide in Him, they're going to burn in hell? That's not even the context here at all, okay? The context of this verse is Yeshua telling His disciples, remember Judas is gone, so He's telling His disciples who He knows are saved about bearing much fruit for Him. He isn't talking to a group that includes unsaved. If any of His disciples don't abide in Him, that disciple will be disciplined. What does a fire represent? They're thrown into the fire. I mean, that sounds like hell. Well, first of all, let me just say this. Hell is not a biblical concept. There's no word in the New Testament that should be translated as hell. That's a made-up thing to keep people, to keep Christians in line. You know, you better do this, or you know, or to keep un- scare unbelievers to salvation, or whatever. All right. This is a figure speech. He's trying to explain figuratively what takes place. Now, had Yeshua been speaking to a crowd that included the unsaved, this fire could have been the fire of eighty seventy 70 judgment. But given the context of his audience, being Yeshua's disciples, I think the fire here is one that speaks of discipline. Fire is a common symbol that occurs throughout the Scripture to describe the judgment of both believers and unbelievers. He disciplines through fire. Fire purges. Fire cleanses. So understanding in that way then our Lord is talking about disciplinary action made necessary because of those who are in the vine but they're not producing fruit. So He's got to deal with that. And Jude 1.23 says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So he's saying they're seriously endangered. They're in the fire, and fellow believers have to go and actively snatch them out of the fire. How do you do that? You go and you plead. Listen, you're in sin. you got to turn from that. You've got to get right with God because this is going to cost you. Snatch them out of the fire divine discipline now my buddy John I think kind of wipes out this whole text when he says this this then is about the nature of genuine salvation no John it's not it's not even a subject he's not talking about that at all it's got nothing to do with that okay nothing the subject in John 15 6 is the bearing of fruit. Not eternal life. The burning is a judgment upon fruitless, not an abandonment to eternal destruction. The mention of fire is only incidental since vine dressers burned the branches they cut off in the fall pruning. Metaphor, it's a picture. They did that, but God will do that. Yeshua's point was that some Christians are as useless to God as these branches were to the vine growers. They're just not doing anything. They're not producing anything. They're not demonstrating the love of Christ. Many interpreters have taken verse 6 as an exposition of verse 2. However, the viticulture process that Yeshua described in verse 6 took place in the fall. Whereas the process mentioned in verse 2 happened in the spring. Very different. The one in the fall was much more severe, cutting out, cutting away these branches. Believers, here's the bottom line of it all. We as Christians are called to abide in Christ and to bear fruit God is glorified when we bear fruit bearing fruit is being like Christ it's loving one another it's forgiving one another. it's you go on and on but it's being like Christ if Christ is like that that's how we are to be that's what it means to abide in him and if we fail to do this it will cost us in this life You're secure in eternity. This is not, I'm going to make sure I keep my seat in heaven. No, you're secure for eternity. It's about this life. You want to have a miserable life here and now? You know, I tell this to people all the time, and most people don't listen or believe it. But if you follow Christ and abide in Him, life is good. doesn't mean you don't have problems. But you know, when you're with Him and in fellowship with Him, the problems aren't that severe. They're just pushing you ever, ever closer. But I see Christians get away. I see Christians get far away and their lives are miserable. And you want to say, hey, wake up. Wake up. Abide in the vine. Because it's, it's a great place to be, people. You know, the Lord laid out the commandments and the precepts, not because not He wanted to see. Let me see how miserable I can make them. He wanted us to enjoy life to its fullest and that's how you do it. Not by going your own direction, but by following Him, abiding in that vine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would be able to take this stuff back to 1 John, Lord, and apply it there as we talk about abiding. That we will understand, Lord, it means to be walking as You walked. Father, we all fall so short of that. But I pray that would be our desire. That would be our motivation. That would be our goal, Lord, to each day. Walk like you. And to examine each situation, Lord, how would you respond to this? How do we bring glory to you through the situation? How do we honor you in it? Lord, thank you for your grace to us, your patience with us. I pray that as you prune us, Lord, we would just bear more and more fruit for your glory. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen. Amen.